Welcome to a Longer Table podcast, a space for real and sometimes hard conversations that will often challenge your perspective and always empower you to pull up more seats around your own table. I'm your host, Amanda Carpenter. Let's dive in. Today I have Shelley on the podcast. This is a really inspiring woman who has an incredible story of resiliency and overcoming. And I am so excited to have you at the table with us, Shelley. Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so happy to be here. I am very impressed by your story and I want everyone that I know to know your story. So let's start at the beginning. Um, Tell me a little bit about your upbringing. Sure. So I was raised in Brooklyn, New York, New York City. Um, during a period where I was raised during the 90s, it was a rough period. You know, it, the crack epidemic had really hit my community. I was raised in an all-Black community, um, which was great in a way because uh, I never felt like out of place or, you know, I've always felt like this was my community. No matter what was going on, even though it was a dangerous time, I never felt unsafe, if that makes sense. Um, I was raised with um, great people who lived on my block. Of course, um, there was the crack epidemic that, you know, really ravaged our community. But we had so many great men and women, um, teachers and lawyers and people who were really community oriented. I mean, I was babysat by a woman up the block who had kids. Right. So they would come down and visit me. And we were just like a real family during that time. Uh, I knew everyone who lived from one corner to the next corner and they knew me and my mother and my mother's mother. So it was very um, a community oriented. And I think that's important to mention in my upbringing because of what goes on today with the racial um, you know, um, violence and racial equality. Um, I never worried about that growing up. We worried about other things <laughs> like crime, right? And my mom was overprotective about me uh, not hanging out with the wrong people or getting involved with the wrong crowds. But we, I never worried about um, who I was as a person, as my confidence, my black skin. Was I beautiful enough? Hmm. Because when I looked around, everybody looked like me and we all kind of encouraged one another. And uplifted one another in our community as black people. That's really cool. I love that. Also, my husband and I love Brooklyn. We, when we were moving, when we were deciding if we were going to live in Chicago or not, Brooklyn was yes. the other, it was kind of like Brooklyn or Chicago. And yes, yes. It, I love honest, Chicago too. We, we love both. And it honestly came down to finances, Chicago, because by the time we were going to move to Brooklyn, you know, it's like this trendy place. So oh, yes. we, we, we ended up here in Chicago, but I love that. So as a black child, you know, in this black community, it doesn't sound like you had a ton of encounters with racist people. You weren't even really around people who didn't look like you. No. Kind of fast forward as you got older. Tell tell me about that, the evolution of your life as a Black woman. Yeah, very. um, So I went to, I grew up in this community of Black people, went to Black schools. So that was important too, where I learned about my history and I learned about the brilliance of Black people, and I learned about how Black people are beautiful and how we've contributed to this country and many other countries. So I always felt confidence in myself, right, in who I was because of that. Um, I, and I, we didn't always have Black teachers. I went to a private school where one of my favorite teachers, Miss Nordine, was a white teacher. Mm. Um, and she taught us about our history, you know, but she was almost like colorless. And, you know, I know some people don't like that word, but she was in the way that she treated us. She treated us like her children, um, her and her husband. Her husband was a pastor. 
And so I, I never like really experienced that side of life until I got older. And not only did I um, go to an all white college, um, Beaver College, and it was called Beaver College back then, almost all white college. I mean, it was only like 15 to 20 black students. Um, but I also um, joined Corporate America, which is mostly white as a writer um, for a financial services firm. And so that's when I began to see, oh my goodness, everybody doesn't feel the same way about me. Um, uh, I had uh, advisors in the college who really made me feel uh, like I was inferior um, and tried to really um, make my college education, you know, not the best times um, because of the fact that, uh, you know, it was just hard sometimes just getting around the politics. And when you're a minority in those situations, there are subtle you know, things, things that happen in the classroom, uh, microaggressions um, that occur that make you feel uncomfortable. Like calling me Chantel, my name is Chalet, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. so, so things like that, but also saying things that, uh, that really, really affect my people and my culture. And I know that this is just not true, you know? Um, so that's when I experienced racism. I saw a different side of life. But mm-hmm. I will say that my upbringing was so important because they were not able to break me no matter what happened. I was not able to be broken because I was so, my foundation was strong. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you had a really great mom who probably did some really. Mom and dad. And mom and and dad. Okay, great. Yes. And grandma. So I was just a circle with love, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Set you up for success, gave you that foundation, which was so important. But as you grew a little bit older, I think in your teens, something pretty significant happened that changed the trajectory of your life. Um, Are you willing to to talk about that? Oh, of course. Yeah. I experienced sexual abuse. I was um, molested at a teenage, as a teenager. And, um, you know, it changed me in a way that even when I think about today, I'm not able to put my hands on it. Right. Because um, I was basically not the same person, like some part of my mental state and my emotional state left my body. Mm. And so, you know, I know what it feels like to feel like all emotion is gone. Like you're a walking zombie, like you're just waking up and going through the motions, but not feeling, you know, every into every day, like you're not connected to the earth in some way, you know? And so was that sexual abuse from someone you knew or was it a complete stranger? No, it was somebody in the church that I knew. Mm. So um, to think about that, somebody in the church, like I'm a lover of Jesus. I love God. And then for this to happen, not only did it question, you know, my, I questioned myself, like my worth, but I began to question God, like really God, like you, you know, how can, you know, this happen to me? Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry that that was your experience. And then yeah. for, um, was that the same incident or a different incident when there was some aggravated assault and your picture was all over the newspapers? Was yes, that, that was separate? different. That was, that was me catching my husband in bed with another Okay. Woman. We yes, have to, yes. we have to talk about that. Yes. So, okay. <laughs> so you, you have this great childhood, but you have this significant sexual abuse from someone in your church that marked your teen years. Then you go to this pretty much predominantly white college. You have a great college experience, but that's when you started to really wake up to racism being real in America. Yes. Then you become a professor and you get married. Yes. You have three children. Yes. And how long were you married for? I was married for over 10 years together for over 14. 
and tell us the story of why and how that marriage ended. Yes. And let me just say, I knew racism existed because I've, you know, it just that I I didn't personally feel it because I was in that community. Right. So I knew it existed because we had the stories of Sean Bell and, you know, people that had gotten killed through police. So we knew it existed, but we just, it didn't personally affect me. Yes. Okay. But yes, when I got married, I, um, you know, it was like, you know, I knew this guy from high school basically. Um, and I, he was like Prince Charming when I when I ran into him. I was like, oh my God, he's so fine. You know, um, <laughs> like I'm, he's going to be my husband. Be careful what you say because I manifested that in my life. Um, and, and you know, I will say that in the beginning, he, he you know, of our relationship, it was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm in love with this guy. But after a while, I began to see warning signs. So it wasn't like, you know, I went into this with my, like, at Blonde, and then just one day I woke up and was like, oh, my God, you showed me somebody totally different. No, this guy was cheating on me before we got married, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I just felt like he's going to change. You know, we're young, and he's going to get better, and, you know, I'm going to pray harder, and I'm going to, you know, um, do what I can. I'm going to be the best wife. I'm going to clean more. I'm going to cook for him more. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to be the superwoman. He's going to love me the way I'm supposed to be loved. And, you know, like us women do. And so I thought there was something I could do to change the narrative of our relationship. Um, And it just got worse, actually. Um, He broke me and he broke me in a way that I didn't know if I could put back the pieces again. Um, And so uh, my final straw was when I caught him in bed with another woman. And even then, I didn't know if that was going to be the final straw for me. But when I had my daughter, my daughter was a baby at this time. I made a decision that I did not want my daughter to think that what I went, what I was experiencing was real love. Yeah. And so that's what really made up my mind. Wow. So you catch your husband in bed with another woman. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, can we just, can I go there for a minute? Did you just yes, freak please. out? Like I would have wanted to beat the crap out of him. Well, that's what kind of <laughs> happened. That's why I kind of went to jail. Okay. Um, <laughs> thank God I didn't get a record, but I mean, it was like that because to tell you the truth, when you see something like that, I know what people say when they say temporary insanity, because I blacked out. Like yeah. I saw red, like yeah. I didn't even know what what came over me? It was like something cruel inside of me. It just took over and it was called rage, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Trust me. I have sympathy. I thank God every day that I am not in jail right now. Okay. (laughs) I mean, seriously. Yeah. I do understand. Yes. So that happens. And how were pictures captured of this incident where there was like, because this, you were a professor at the time at this really respected university and you catch your husband cheating on you. And somehow like this comes out into the media, which is so you're already embarrassed by what's happened. Then you're embarrassed by like the fact that this is captured. Like, how did you react? Oh my God. You know, I think I, I can honestly say that was like the darkest period of my life. Um, I felt a little suicidal, you know, because mm-hmm. I was like, everything I work for is going to be lost. But of course, I had to live for my children and and for, um, you know, there's there's a point where you have to look at yourself and take responsibility for what you allow. Um, and so I really see it as a blessing, even though it was the worst period of my life, because what happened was I was really living this private lie. You know what I'm saying? Yep. And God made it public. And I wasn't willing to make it public, you know, because I was willing to stay in this lie. And the more I said, 
reveal to me what I need in my life, reveal to me what's good for my life. It was revealed. It was revealed in the most embarrassing way. Now, of course, the paper put on there that I just assaulted this man, not putting that he was my husband who I put in bed with another woman. Right. But um, I, thank God I was able to overcome that. And really, it really made me um, stick to the model that I live by now, which is never live a private lie. Like live mm-hmm. in your truth, no matter what it is, bad, good, ugly, um, so that nobody can ever do that again. Nobody can ever make me feel like that. I love that. Never live a private lie. That is so good. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but I have this mantra that the internet knows it's called impressing is exhausting. And I just believe yes. that impressing is exhausting and that we cannot heal what we're hiding. And so oh I love, yes. I love that we have that in common, um, not living the private lie. So yeah. you go ahead and divorce your husband at that point after this is the, the infidelity and the struggles have been going on for years. Yes. Yes. Point. What was the process like after that? Did you remarry? Have you healed and forgiven him? Do your children still see him? What What's yeah. life like post-divorce? Well, I must say that, um, yes, I've forgiven him. We are friends, actually. He is my friend. He is my, uh, we co-parent together. Um, and it wasn't me. It didn't, it, it wasn't just me in the healing. I'm a natural uh, lover of life. I'm naturally always trying to um, self-purify and really look at myself and do introspection, right? That's a natural thing for me. But I found myself, even before I got divorced, um, having to go through therapy. I went through years of therapy. And even today, if I feel like I'm reverting back to something I don't like or something's happening with me or some emotions are coming out, I go to therapy. And I saw this fantastic Black woman by the name of Beverly and she really just said, okay, are you ready? Are you ready to set, set boundaries for your life? Are you ready to deal with the things that you want to deal with? And she really confronted me, you know, the me I didn't want to confront. Like, sometimes we think that the situation we, we are in is because of the present situation, that moment. But when we really get the therapy and the healing we need, we found out that a lot of things that we put ourselves in is positions because of the past. We never healed from things that happened, you know, 10, 20 years ago. And so I had to heal those things that were still broken in me and realize that those things that were broken in me caused me or made me feel like that I should stay in this broken marriage also. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I developed self-love for myself and began the process of healing myself, I was able to easily forgive, easily let it go. And I I say I have this thing where I welcome peace in my life at all terms, all times, all all terms, right? So there's no point in my life that I, um, when I feel like I'm not at peace, that I don't stop and, and, and just meditate and breathe in peace again, because I can't afford to live a life of, you know, aggravation and, and grief. And, you know, so that's just something that, yes, I, I totally have feel like I've overcome that hurdle of getting past that pain and really being bitter because people that are bitter when they get hurt like that, it really just affects them. Unforgiveness affects you. Now, of course, I believe that it takes time. You have to go through the stages of grief and anger and everything. But once I went through those stages, I realized how important it was to forgive. Yeah, that's so good. There's so much wisdom in that. And since then, you have written books. Your your next book is coming out um, called Be Mad, But Get to the Other Side. And I've got to tell you, 
I'm obsessed with that title. I love it. I love it because I think you nailed it. Like we, we have, there tends to be really extremes. Um, I think the pendulum can swing from one side to the other. Like some people say, ignore your emotions. They're lying to you kind of get over it. And then the other side that like, it's all about the feelings and the emotions, but it's like, okay, I need to get out of that. I can't be stuck there forever. And I love that you're like, be mad, but get to the other side. Tell me what, um, this, what comes out next month. What is this book about? Yeah. So basically you, you address some of the issues that I address in the book, but it's all about a couple of things. It's about my own experiences also, of course, of being mad and just what you said of how being, you know, you have to be careful because I think it's important that people are allowed to be angry. I, I remember when I first went to my therapist, she said, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be mad. Let me feel that angry. Let me feel that mad. Go ahead. Let it out. Be angry for a month. Be baby for two months. But then there was a point where you can get so stuck in anger that you just, you, you, you feel like everything is making you upset. You know those people that you just know they're mad every day because they just wear it. It's become a part of their countenance. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I thought it was important to write this book, not only because of the racial injustice that we're seeing and the murders and people are just mad as hell right now. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, Um, You know, but I, you know, and so that was part of me writing this book, seeing people upset and mad, being mad myself in bad relationships, you know, um, in in my marriage, right? And and me feeling inadequate as a mother at times, you know? Um, And then realizing, okay, yes, it's okay to be mad, okay? It's okay to have these feelings, but how do we get to the other side? How do we press? And so I think about that. And also me being a black woman, how, you know, when we are black, when we got to be so careful, we're always tiptoeing in society because if we show too much emotion or get or too rude or have a bad day or have an attitude, we're labeled as mad black women, you know? So mm-hmm. I address those issues in the book. Yeah. Wow. I'm really excited to read it. And it sounds like so much of your ability to write on these topics as a, as a professor who obviously you have your master's degree in English and, and even more, I mean, you're just very, uh, you're, extremely credible, but you've done the work you've gone to therapy, um, which is so important. I do want to talk about if, if you're willing for a few minutes, the current reality of like racial tensions, the election coming up where people that like me, maybe who are white are for the first time unable to deny that racism still exists in America. So many white people I know wanted to believe that racism was hundreds of years ago when it was, you know, they thought of slavery and that's how they viewed it. Um, and, and are now in a position where you, I mean, we've got video footage, you can't deny it anymore. And then there's the looting and the rioting and people are, it's, it feels like, um, it's a constant state of chaos. Oh my gosh. You know, I'm speaking to my grandma about this and she said, wow, I feel like I'm back in the civil rights movement. You know, I feel like I'm back in the sixties. Um, and I think that, um, I, and I, what I said to my grandmother is that things have evolved, but not so much when things can move on, but if minds and hearts are not changed, you will always see things going back. And then you'll think like, wait a minute, this was, this was supposed to be resolved years ago. Right. It's almost like trauma, trauma unresolved comes back to haunt you. And so I feel like this is what's happening to America. We're in a state of trauma where people are um, now being exposed. Um, um, racism is being exposed. It's not that it didn't exist. 
It's just that it exists in the hearts and minds and it was quiet. And before social media and cameras and, you know, uh, phones and, and things like this, we, we kind of like swept it under the rug. Right. Um, and so even this conversation, hard, I have a lot of uh, white friends. I have friends that are voting for Trump, you know, um, I have friends that, that like Trump. And so I have these conversations. I always say to people, the cancel culture is really dangerous because mm-hmm. it closes down communication. Yep. And what we need in this time is communication. I speak to my white friends who have voted for Trump and tell them why I'm not voting for Trump. Okay. I speak to my Christian evangelical friends who um, think that one issue is more important than the other issue. And I explain to them why one issue is not more important to the other issue or the hypocrisy of it all. Um, Right. Exactly. So um, this racial and climate has been so, I think that a lot of uh, black people and even people who want to deny it still uh, that systematic racism has to understand that this is years of oppression. This is years of being denied opportunities that have kind of what we're seeing take root right now. Um, so even if you don't want to say it exists, exists a hundred years ago, um, you know, black people are, I'm blessed, I'm fortunate, right? But most black people, if you look at the statistics even, um, are not afforded the same opportunities as white because of the the years behind that they have catching up to because of the laws that were put in place, Jim Crow laws, black folks that denied them housing and opportunities and education and, you know, people who have been arrested, I mean, um, that lost families and lives and injustice, you know, incorrectly because these new technologies don't exist today. And now we're starting like movements to help them get free. So um, I just you know, always have this conversation with, with um, my friends of different cultures um, and say that we must stick together when it comes to injustice because my injustice now could be your injustice later, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and Martin Luther King says injustice, one place is injustice everywhere, I'm paraphrasing. Yep. Yep. Um, so, I, you know, this racial climate has really had me sad. I must yeah. Say. Yeah, I can imagine. And even with your kids and how you're having those conversations. And, you know, I heard someone say that I'm going to paraphrase as well, but I I heard someone say that what we're going through right now, the reason so many white people are feeling so irritated by it or even oppressed is because for the first time, uh, people are begging and striving for equality. And when the world for so long has had white supremacy, it's going to feel like oppression because we have to give up something in order for there to be equality. That's not true oppression. That's just what it's going to feel like till we get to equality. I, I It's like, I, I thought that oh was such gosh, a- so powerful. It is. And it had such a light bulb moment because my husband and I, who obviously we're both white, we were like, oh my goodness, like we can say, of course, black lives matter and of all this stuff. And we can actively pursue anti-racism. But when it comes down to it, are we willing to sacrifice? Are we willing to give up some things? Because that is the only way that we're actually going to achieve equality at some point. And then you get into all the conversations about defunding the police and everything else. And I I have been labeled someone who doesn't support police or whatever, because I've said I'm for that. When in reality, I think there's just miseducation around the language and what it actually is. is. It is. I am not, I am not against police. And because because I'm white, 
Um, and because of my experience in the world, I still view police as people who protect and serve, but that's not going to be the same experience for every black person. In fact, my boys who are black are terrified when we say, when we say like, boys, there's a cop behind us. Cause I'm always scared. I'm going to get pulled over. Cause I'm, I totally speed. I got to admit, like right. I, I, have, I am like really <laughs> Me bad. Too. I'm going to speed demon sometimes. And yes. my husband just got pulled over last week for quote unquote excessive lane changing, which <laughs> it just explains my husband in a nutshell. He just like, gets right. around, he's like, can't stand slow driver. So he's right. moving in and out. Anyways, he got pulled over and it's like, our boys are terrified. And they, to our knowledge, haven't had necessarily a bad interaction with the police, but they see these stories, they hear about this stuff. And of course they're going to be scared, you know, and it's just not fair. And it, it is really sad, but it's like, okay, we can't just sit in the, it's not fair. This sucks. We have to do something about it. So what do you, what does your family, is it, is it through voting? Is it through protesting? Is there specific steps of action that your family takes to help fight this good fight? Yes, that's a good question. I mean, yes, for me, it's voting, but that's not the the language for everybody. Um, And I understand both sides of the argument. I have a lot of close black friends that say, Chalet, I will never vote because it doesn't matter. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't argue with them because if you don't see any changes in community, you don't you're going to think that voting doesn't matter. Right. So I understand their argument, even though I personally feel like people have died for me to vote. So I have no choice but to vote. Um, But but I will say that um, for me, it's doing a lot of things. It's it starts with me in my classroom. I'm exposing my students to uh, different cultures, right, and literature, and in communication, and realizing that this world is not just based on um, European uh, greats, right? That we have Black people who are great and made contributions to society. So that's on a micro level of of exposing my students to, to other cultures than themselves, right? I mean, what we educate our students in the classroom matters, yeah. and it matters to the way they think. Um, there are things that can that can be done as as far as black leadership, you know, and, and not just any black leadership, but black leaders who really um, who really are concerned with social justice, who are concerned with um, with having people who care about equality and not just uh, feeding into a mission or or just concerned about a top position and now they want to um, they're willing to uh, what I would call suck up to, Mm. you know, uh, you know, other people's principles, right? So we need principled Black people who are willing to tear down the system of white supremacy and white privilege. Um, And so I'm not mad at white people when they say systematic racism doesn't exist, because I understand if I lived in a life of a privilege all my life, why would I want to give that up? You know what I'm saying? Why would I want to acknowledge something that gives up something that I've hold so true dear, whether it's financially or spirit, whatever it is, right? So I, I do understand, you know, but what I would say is that there will never be equality if we don't sit back and we don't acknowledge, at least acknowledgement is the first form of what's going on in America. Um, and I think that's that's important. So as me and my family, you know, I'm just really about educate, educating my children. I make them watch Roots and I, I make them be very connected to their history, but I make them connected to all histories of the Holocaust. I want them connected to any history of oppression yeah. because I want them to see how dangerous oppression could be yeah. and how dangerous dictatorship could be and how dangerous societies that, that hold certain people above other people can be. That's so good. Yeah preach. I love that you're a professor and using your, uh, 
privilege in the classroom to reach yes. students and to, to do this work. I am so thankful for you coming on, being willing to share your story and just, uh, I can't wait for my listeners to get to know you more. We'll be obviously tagging you in the show notes. Really yes. can't wait for your book to be out. I'm sure oh, my, my mom it. and I will be reading it together. I think she loves to yes. love that title too. So, yes. um, thank you so much for being here at a longer table and just showing up with your full self. Thank you so much for having me, Amanda.